This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Anna Downs, welcome to Better Reading. Hi, Cheryl. Thank you so much for having me. It's yeah, great no, to be I'm here. super <laughs> excited about this conversation because I feel that you're very, very talented. I don't know how Thank old you are and you don't have to tell me. But I'm, you, I'm fine with it. I'm, I'm 40, 40 and proud. Yeah, 40 and proud uh, yeah. and a lot, lot younger than me. And you've done so much up to this point. So yeah. I'm going to introduce you. Anna was born and raised in Sheffield in the UK, but now lives and uh, works just outside of Sydney, up the coast somewhere with her husband and two children. She worked as an actress before turning her attention to writing and appeared in BBC TV shows such as EastEnders, Casualty, Holby City and Pasco. is that right? As well as a long-running straight stage production of The Dresser in London's West End. She has multiple degrees, so she's an actor, she has multiple <laughs> degrees from both Manchester University and is that Radar. Rada. Rada. Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, yeah. Yeah, Rada. She has been published in the Zodiac Literary Review, shortlisted for the Sydney Writers' Room Short Story Prize and longlisted for the Margaret River Short Story Competition. So this is her debut fiction book. It's called The Safe Place and it was inspired by Anna's experience working as a live-in housekeeper on a remote French estate in 2009 and 2010. So actor, housekeeper, <laughs> mum... Um, I was a massage therapist for quite a long time as well, actually, when I first arrived. (laughs) (laughs) Worked as a chiropractic assistant. Okay, so tell me, tell me, tell me. So tell me firstly about where you grew up and really when is it that you started? I mean, I feel as though acting and writing are storytellers anyway. Yeah. 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 So talk to me about growing up with story in your head. So... I grew up in Sheffield, as you said, which is in uh, South Yorkshire uh, in the UK. And it's a city. It's um, the fourth largest city in the UK. But we lived in sort of South Sheffield. I think it's South Sheffield anyway, quite near the outskirts. And my paternal grandfather was the warden of the Peak District National Park. So uh, we were always kind of out on the moors and sort of, you know, it sort of felt like Wuthering Heights country and, you know, very dramatic and blustery. And my mum was always a big fan. You know, she always took us, uh, me and my sister, to the ballet and to the theatre from a very young age. Uh, But I think the biggest influence on my passion for storytelling was my dad, who was a drama teacher at the local high school, which I then went to. Um, He never taught me, but he was and still is a, a very charismatic person. Uh, And he is one of the best storytellers I've ever come across. And so, um, you know, even little things like being read at night, uh, read to at night, you know, read read bedtime stories. See, Um, those things are formative, isn't it? Those tiny little things. 
My niece, um, uh, Sarah, she has a little girl called Liv. She's beautiful. And during COVID, she has been ringing all her aunts through FaceTime at night to read her her bedtime story. Really? It's amazing. I know I've heard some stories like that as well. My mum's yeah. been doing that too. She's actually been recording videos and putting them up on YouTube, like unlisted, but so yeah. that my kids can can watch her reading a story every day Isn't if they it? want to. Isn't yeah, that lovely. magic? They yeah. will remember that. She will absolutely yeah. remember that. Yeah. So, I mean, I really, really remember um, the books that my dad read to me um, and he would always put the accents on and, you know, make it incredibly vibrant and exciting. And so my love of stories came from there, I think, you know, it was born from there. I went on to be an incredibly voracious reader. I was always, you know, being told off for having my nose stuck in a book, you know, at the dinner time, put the book down, Anna, eat your food. And then... I mean, yeah, the, the, the ballet and the theatre was always there, but I think it was so my transition from sort of stories and, and books and reading to desperately wanting to be a performer. I think those seeds were sown again by my dad uh, because many kind of afternoons after school, I would go with him to rehearsals for his school plays, you know, or, or on weekends, we would go and, and sit in rehearsal room floors with some homework or some colouring in and watch him and his, you know, sort of 15, 16, 17 year old kids putting on their school plays. And my dad was never interested in, uh, you know, putting on the, the stock standard fare, you know, it wasn't always Greece and, and Oliver and, and things like that. He wanted to do Kafka and Lorca, <laughs> Frank McGuinness. Yeah, there was a production that he did of, uh, of Kafka's Metamorphosis that was, because uh, he's also been a, a huge um, set designer as well. So, you know, they had this huge set that was all made of scaffolding and the guy that played the Gregor would be kind of hanging upside down and kind of crawling all over the, this incredible um, scaffolding set. So uh, anyway, there, was, there were a few absolutely amazing uh, productions, very, very kind of complex and deep and sort of shocking in a way you know there was there was one that really stuck in my mind that was a devised performance it was an uh, and kind of an adaptation of the Oedipus myth so lots of um murder and sex and uh, incest and people hanging themselves and gouging their eyes out and it was just like as a nine-year-old kid sitting there on the floor going mm. I've never seen anything as awesome as this in my life and so I actually inserted myself into into that play I kind of sidled up to my dad at one point and said now dad I really think that what your production is missing at this point is um young Antigone and I think you need a, a scene I mean you know possibly she could be nine years old you know I happen to be nine years old I, uh, I think I would fill that role rather well and uh, so <laughs> you know lo and behold that was my first ever stage performance was and how did you take to that I just loved it. I loved yeah. it. I loved it. I dragged my sister on as well because I said that there should be a young Ismany as well. And she was a bit like, I am going to kill you. This is yeah. <laughs> But I was like, this, I feel at home. I feel alive. Like, I just loved yeah. it. Um, and from then on, it was a complete obsession. I, uh, you know. Um, to act. Yeah, to act. To act. So, and to perform as well. You know, I, I, I wanted to do dancing. I had singing lessons but mainly it was school plays, youth theatres. There was our local theatre 
uh, did like a, a few residencies, you know, where you could actually go on the main stage and use it and rehearse. And I did, I did a dance residency with Ballet Rambert and um, yeah, stuff like that. It was just constant. I didn't want to do anything else. So. Were you studying at the time? Were you still at I was a school, I was a school, yeah. So I did A-levels, um, you know, theatre studies and, um, and all of that and, and, and French. And, um, and then I went on to do my drama degree, which was an academic degree, three years of studying, you know, um, the history of theatre and um, dramaturgy and uh, playwriting and theatre in prisons, theatre and education, all kinds of, even like theatre architecture, um, film theory. And then after that, I won my place at, at RADA and uh, trained for three years as an actor. So. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So tell me then, so you were, in, were you working in live theatre a lot and then you transitioned from theatre to TV? Is that what happened? Was it yeah, like pretty much, yeah. I mean, it, it's very difficult just to happen upon television jobs um, unless you've been trained and you've got an agent. I mean, some people, I guess some people fall into it as, as children. Um, mm-hmm. But no, I'd never done any TV at all. They do a little bit with you at drama school, but not very much at all. And so, yeah, it was a bit of a baptism of fire because I got four TV jobs, quite high profile TV jobs quite quickly. And the first one I ever did was DL and Pasco. So it was a, oh, no, it wasn't it, actually. It was Casualty. Casualty was the first one I did, which I think was quite good, actually. Like, looking back on it, when I when I watch it back, it's it's not too bad. DL and Pasco was the second one I did, which was um, I played a, a zookeeper called Katie Donovan who uh, gets caught up in, a, in an organ trafficking ring, which is <laughs> a bit bananas. Um, you know, I was working with animals and I got, I got locked in a cage with a snake and all this stuff. But I was, you can really tell that I had very, no, like very little experience on that job. I don't think at that point I still hadn't learned uh, that less is more when it comes to TV. So yeah, lots of, lots of big lessons to learn there. <laughs> and did you enjoy, like, if you look back, what was it you liked more, TV or theatre? Um, I mean, I, it was always theatre, just that, that, raw live thrill and the energetic exchange that you get with the audience and the fact that every night you're doing exactly the same thing but it's always slightly different and the more comfortable you get with your fellow cast members the more comfortable you get with the material the more air there is for it to breathe and become something um completely different and and you know the the joy as well of of being able to redo it over and over again and go, well, what will we find tonight? How will we explore this tonight? And actually last night was a bit crap in that scene, wasn't it? Well, never mind. We get to do it again. Brilliant. I I did the more acting, the more professional acting I did, the more I enjoyed television. I think because of that less is more thing, that's it. It's a really detailed sort of delicate thing to do is TV acting. It's a really hard thing to learn and it's a really hard thing to get right so um, I found that really challenging at first but then really really rewarding the more I did it. And throughout those years were you writing as well were you thinking about writing no not at all not at all not at all it was always like um, I mean I as a kid so my my grandma if you ask my grandma she will tell you that when we were on family holidays you know when you get to about sort of four o'clock, five o'clock, everyone's had enough of the pool and, you know, you kind of go back to your 
room and have a have a sundowner and I at that point I would always take myself off with a notebook and write my quote-unquote novel and you know seven or eight years old that was so it was always kind of there and I definitely yeah wrote as a child but as soon as the acting took over it was just out of my head and there were points at which you know friends or family would say to me oh you know you should you should write a book about this you know there's a there's a novel in you and I'd be like yeah, right. Why well, I just um, I'll just compose a piano concerto while I'm at yes. it, shall I? I'll just become a vet. Shall I just do that? <laughs> oh, oh, an astronaut. Yes, I'll just pop myself you know, in space. I'm so glad you say that because there are so many people, and you, you've come across this obviously. But you know, I go out sometimes. Well, pre-COVID, when I used to go out. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, people say, what do you do? I worked in publishing. But, oh, I've always wanted to write a book. Oh, I think, I, I think I've got a book in me. And I think what that just takes away so much from writers because oh. there is a craft. There is, oh. It's like music. You have to practice. It's like acting. You have to practice. Well, and also, I mean, I was such a big reader and my respect for uh, writers and f- for books was such that I just thought it was... And I still think it's it's one of the highest forms of art, and I, I just could not ever imagine um, that I would ever be able to do it. It was I th- honestly, I know it sounds cheesy, but I think it's the closest thing that we have to magic. And so I, yeah, there was no assumption at any point that someday I would give it a go. Never. Okay, so so you're acting. Uh, mm-hmm. So, um, and I want to know at what point. How did you get to Australia and at what point did you decide to come here? Okay, so I had, uh, how to tell it, my acting career kind of faltered and crumbled. I had a a bit of a, a run of bad luck, a kind of series of unfortunate events that led me to an agent change. Um, and to a year where I, I didn't really have anywhere to live. I was couch surfing. I had to leave London and go and move back to um, where my parents lived in Bristol. It just felt like I was failing, flailing, <laughs> all of those things. And I was really unhappy. I was very anxious. I felt like I couldn't quite get myself under control. I was I just turned 28 as well. So, you know, there's that, that point where you're kind of approaching 30 and you're going, oh, I don't know if I want to do this. I? Yeah. Who am I? Who am yeah. I going to be? Is this really going to be forever? I was working a couple of jobs with some um, older ladies who were, you know, sort of in their sixties and still, jobbing around, um, temping, um, handling the sort of unsteady income and the uncertainty as best they could. And I think, you know, they were very happy, but I, I remember looking at them and going, I'm not sure this is what I want for me. So I decided to take a break. And uh, at the time I was very into snow sports. So I decided, I, I said to my agent, I'm going to take six months to do something that I like to do that's, that's fun and brings me joy. And I'm going to think about what I'm going to do when I get back, you know. Uh, so I went and did this. I, I got a job. I actually retrained as a massage therapist as uh, just something to do that wasn't temping in between jobs. Mm-hmm. So uh, with my massage qualification, I got this job in a, a, a ski resort in the French Alps. And whilst doing that job, I met my now husband. And oh, wow. Yeah. So we had so much fun. It was really freeing and eye-opening. Like, oh, goodness, you know, there's so much more world out there that I'm never going to get to experience if I stay in London waiting for the phone to ring. I don't think I'm going to go back. 
And so we continued to travel together, Matt and I. One of the adventures that we had in those couple of years was working for a family as live-in caretakers slash housekeepers on their beautiful yet remote property on the Midwest coast of France, uh, which is what the safe place is based on. So um, that was an extraordinary experience, really fun, really lovely. The family were fantastic, not sinister at all. They were generous and a lot of fun and yeah but the the remote the 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 property itself was really remote really uh, unusual in its positioning you know it was sort of in the middle of forest and right on a cliff edge and the family weren't there all of the time sometimes Matt and I would be there by ourselves and we really did feel that isolation then you know and there were a few things that happened um you know some incidents some little things that just really stuck in my head. And I do remember saying to Matt at the time, I'm going to write a book about this one day. But it was more like a ha, 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 you know, yeah, Mm. whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I did say it and I did keep thinking of it. And then when Matt's European visa ran out, I was still young enough to get the Australian working holiday visa. So we came over here just to kind of be here for a year and see what happened. Matt's Australian. Matt's Australian, yeah. Right. Born and raised on the Central Coast. And so, yeah, we came here and then everything just kind of unfolded quite organically and naturally and quite quickly as well. So sort of three years later, I was married and pregnant and, uh, you know, we bought a house and I was like, oh, I think I live here now. Okay, fine. (laughs) Um, It's a gradual thing. Yeah, yeah. There was never any kind of concrete decision that that was what we were going to do. But um, yeah, I'm now a citizen. I got my citizenship in 2016. Um, And it it was a great move. One of the best decisions I ever made. Uh, However, it you know, wasn't without its challenges. Being away from my own home, my own family and friends um, mm. was, was you know, it was quite difficult, particularly when I had my children. I've got two. They're now almost six and just turned four. My son was a very, you know, he was a really easy, chilled baby, quite textbook. But we got pregnant again really quite quickly and Daisy came along and she was just a Rubik's cube of a child Mm. could not figure her out she never slept she still doesn't sleep and you know as anybody who has children knows having two kids under two is is really difficult for anybody under any circumstances but I think that because I was um I was feeling quite isolated I hadn't yet found my people you know I'd Mm. made friends but I hadn't yet found my people so um I I was feeling very lonely um, and also very cut off from creativity. Yeah, you know, that's been like such it. a, yeah. yeah, such a huge part of my life that I reached, a, you know, reached a point where I was like, I don't even recognize myself mm. anymore. I've got nothing that I feel outside of the kids. I've got nothing that I feel like I'm doing well at. I'm, I'm not achieving anything. I'm, I don't, I don't know who I'm going to be in the future uh, other than a, a mother. And, you know, it, it, it all, spiraled into some really um, quite bad postnatal anxiety. And so there was a point at which I just went, well, I've got to do something. So it's either going to be, I might paint a picture or I might join a drumming group or maybe I'll write a book. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Just going back to your postnatal anxiety, oh, yeah. did you seek help for that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's I think, so important, isn't it? Yeah. And it's so important for people to talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I actually bumped into... Um, a couple of kindy mums in the park the other day uh, and we were talking about it uh, and I was saying how when you're in it mm. you don't realize that's what you're going through it all feels very rational and sane mm. when you're going through it and you feel because like you're it's fatigued you can't sleep you're oh, not eating properly. that's right you're not eating properly yeah. and you're not you can't make any decisions mm. and you feel like everyone else around you they're kind of the crazy ones because they're all going oh she'll be right it'll be fine and you're going mm. what's wrong with you why can't anybody see how mm. terrible this is I I mean that they were that these kindy moms were saying that's exactly the same as me and I think that's that's one of the other reasons why it's so lonely it's such a lonely condition because other people who are going through it don't talk about it because they themselves no. they don't realize what they're going through either it's only afterwards only once you're out of the woods that you go oh that's what was happening and then mm. you know you do start talking about it but I still think there's even then there's a huge amount of shame that's surrounding mm. it you know because as a parent as a mother you feel like you've been negligent like you've been weak or there's something wrong something. with you why yeah. am I not coping and other people are yeah yeah in fact most people aren't yeah. yeah you haven't safeguarded your own sanity well enough and yeah. therefore your you know your deterioration is entirely your fault yeah. because you can't look after your children it's just mm. awful so for me the answer was to try you know, some people um, throw themselves into exercise. Some people mm. um, throw themselves into their job, whatever. Um, my, my solution was to read some theory books on writing and see if they made sense to me. And they did. So I started to lay some words down with that house in mind, you know. Um, and there was also, there were a few other ideas floating around my head and I wanted to write. I knew I wanted to write about those. So I kind of, it, it was about, I would say three or four years of percolation of all these ideas kind of floating around. And then um, I think my daughter was eight months old when I decided, right, I really need to try and lay this down and it's going to help me. Did you find it difficult? Like writing. I know everything else was difficult around you, but the process. <laughs> it was all difficult. Yeah, but you had to compartmentalise in a way, didn't you? You had to put that aside, that, you know, to create some time to start thinking about the project, don't you? Yeah, I think at first it was just fun. I remember, I mean, I still have all those, uh, the, the scenes that I started writing at the very beginning and they're, they're pretty rubbish. Um, but and they're, they're also very... Um, 
it obviously just me working out a few things on the page, you know, personal things. But then I think once I got the idea of the story, it kind of sprouted wings quicker than I anticipated. So I wouldn't say that I found it difficult. No, I think I found the whole process largely really joyful. I looked forward every day to the time when I could get my butt in the chair and do some work. I would. And how did you carve that time out? Um, I, I, yeah, really, really difficult. When you're a mum of two children, you you basically have no time at all. Um, I, I remember that I, I would get up at four, Mm. four 30 in the morning. Yeah. Wow. And I would write then. This is, uh, again, this is when Daisy was eight months old. So, I I mean, I wouldn't recommend trying to get up at four o'clock in the morning in the real early days because you need to kind of have as much rest as you can. But there did come a point at which it it started to settle down a little bit. So I was able to get up early in the morning before the kids woke up. I have a, a supportive partner as well. You know, on Saturday mornings, he would take both kids out to the park so that I could write. Um, he would take them round to his parents' house on a Sunday so, and I would stay at home. Bath time, he would put the kids in the bath and I would squirrel myself away um, in the bedroom. Soft play centres, I would take them to soft play centres. I'd set up my laptop and I would just kind of have one, one eye on the kids and one eye on the story. Public transport, I mean, obviously not with the kids, but if ever I found myself, if I knew I was going to get on a train, I'd take mm. my laptop with me. And also, it's not just about putting words down as well. You know, if I had an opportunity to go to the grocery, you know, the, the supermarket on my own, I'd listen to a podcast. So, you know, or I'd, um, I'd, I'd listen to something inspiring. You know, if I, mm-hmm. even if I had 20 minutes, I'd be like, okay, I can go for a walk here. I can put my headphones on and I can listen to a bit of an audio book or I can... Um, just anything to tap to into, escape. yeah, yeah to, to to escape, but also to just keep stoking the fire, keep yes. the imagination going, keep going back to that world that I was creating for myself that was helping so much. And at what point did you feel that you had a novel, and how did you get um, to publication? So, at, at one point, um, I decided that it might be a nice idea to do some workshops in person and then so I booked myself on a couple of workshops um during Sydney Writers Festival and I kind of rocked up with 25,000 22,000 words of of the setup and uh, as I've found out later um the setup is usually the most fun you know it's the uh, the, the bit that um we all kind of happily bounce through la 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 and then you kind of reach that 25k mark and and it you know you don't know how to push forward into the meat of the story the middle of the story is always the hardest um and it was at that point at which i stopped and went oh i think i need some some help if i'm going to make this into anything and i'm i'm very driven like i'm somebody that um if i'm going to do something i'm going to do it you know so there was no point there was no point in my head of just like stringing a few scenes together I was like well if I'm going to write a book I'm going to write it Mm, Um, yeah yeah. 
so I did this um, workshop and that was very inspiring. Um, I did two of them actually. Uh, one of them was more about kind of building story and the other one was about editing. And of course, you know, I wasn't at an editing stage, but I just thought, oh, well, you know, always good to get different information. But that turned out to be the most valuable for me because the woman running it was a um, senior uh, commissioning editor at a very large um, publishing house. And she... Uh, said to me at the end she said I really think that your idea has huge potential and I think I, I know I've got a you know a colleague that might be interested in it so when you're done here's my card send it over and that was a real turning point because suddenly you I had could the confidence yeah. I had the confidence but I could see yeah a way in mm. and I was like okay maybe this doesn't have to be something that I have to keep secret and keep behind the doors um maybe it's something that could turn into something if i have the confidence to declare it and be honest about it so from that point i actually started telling people you know friends and family i'm i'm trying to write a book then i then <laughs> i got a bit obsessed and started going okay well if i'm going to finish this and send it off to this commissioning editor why not send it to other people as well okay how do we do that let's find out what what do you need in order to send uh, a submission out do you go to an agent do you go to a publisher do you need a cover letter like what kind of credits should i have okay maybe i should have a few credits on the cv fine i'll craft a few short stories i'll try really hard to make them as good as i can i'll send them off see if i can get some short listings or you know something mm. um it's yeah. a it's a textbook approach to getting published. I mean, you you yeah. did the due diligence, you did the work, yeah. um, and it's really paying off for you now. I mean, it's extraordinary. I mean, you're in the I think you're in the top ten fiction bestseller list. Is that right? You're on there. I believe that at the moment we are number thirteen overall. Yeah, and yeah. I think number five in Australian fiction. So yeah, yeah, yeah it's really not good. Bad. Um, Anna, I can't thank you enough for your time. It's a remarkable story. Um, it's a great book. The book is called The Safe Place. It's out now and congratulations. Thank you, Cheryl. It's been so lovely to talk to you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.